0: CW, Living Planet, with Charlie Shield.
1: How do sperm whales express their cultural differences? And what kind of music would birds and the wind make, given the chance? In today's episode, we're giving you a taste of these resident offerings – And later, getting our feet wet, speaking to climate scientists who are trying to figure out whether tidal marshes can help us reduce planetary warming by continuing to absorb carbon, or whether rising sea levels will mean they start to do the opposite. I'm Charlie Shield. This is Living Planet. whale strandings occur fairly regularly, yet no one really knows why, including scientists. But there are some theories, and many of them have to do with sound. Much like humans, whales are intensely social animals, and they're constantly talking to each other. Although obviously it sounds a bit different, but we'll have more on that later. But also like humans, whales aren't all the same – there are dozens of species, and within each species, hundreds of different groups and cultures, each with unique ways of communicating. To understand more about how whales end up all stranding together, we need to understand whale speak a bit better. So I called up a whale sound expert.
2: My name is Taylor Hirsch. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the Comparative Bioacoustics Group, which is based at the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. Taylor Hirsch is what's called a bioacoustician. She studies animal
1: sounds, and her whale of choice is the sperm whale. She said that although frequent strandings in Tasmania may suggest there's something about the ocean there that's very tricky for whales to navigate, many scientists think mass strandings often have to do with breakdowns in communication.
2: What can happen with animals like sperm whales or pilot whales, they communicate using echolocation or clicks. And when you get into more complicated, you know, as the ocean changes, there's more things that can either absorb their sounds or reflect their sounds, and it can just become more confusing to navigate. And then for both pilot whales and sperm whales, they're also extremely social. So as soon as one member of the group becomes confused or starts putting out distress calls, that can bring other members of the group in. And then you can start to have some of these mass stranding effects where it basically, it becomes a wheel down a hill as more and more animals respond to the distress calls of their friends or family members. More and more animals actually find themselves getting stuck on beaches or in shallow water.
1: Taylor has done a lot of research trying to decipher different whale talk. Apparently, Whales make unique sounds based on their different cultures.
2: Animal culture used to be almost a taboo phrase. But the evidence is growing and growing that animals really do have culture, that they structure their societies around cultural lines. The sperm whales especially, you know, culture is a very pervasive aspect of their lives. As
1: humans, we might think of our culture being tied to the food we like to eat or the music we like to dance to. And of course, the language we speak. So is that the same for animals?
2: If you think about culture in its broadest sense, you can kind of distill it down to this idea of culture being the way we do things. What we often look for is among animals of the same species, distinct subgroups that have their own way of doing something. So whether that is foraging or communicating or moving or socializing, it's a way of living life that you learn from those around you.
1: Taylor and 26 other scientists published research identifying different sperm whale cultures based on their special dialects and accents. Scientists call these sperm whale dialects codas. They're the unique patterns of clicking sounds the whales
2: make. The entire sperm whale communication system is based on clicks, and codas are kind of one way of packaging clicks so you can think of them as just patterns you know in some parts of the world the whales really might like to make a coda that goes click 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 so it's different rhythmic patterns to the clicks that the whales are producing and those differ by sperm whale cultural group
1: taylor sent me some of the sperm whale coda recordings and we took a listen together starting with a group called the four plus clan So what are we hearing here, exactly?
2: So in that recording, you're hearing multiple whales clicking, and specifically, many of those whales are producing codas, again, those stereotyped patterns of clicks. And these whales belong to a cultural group called the Four Plus Clan, which is named because most of their codas start with four equally spaced clicks. And then they'll add some other clicks onto the ends of those codas. the total coda might have seven clicks or eight clicks, but they always really seem to start with four equally spaced clicks.
1: Okay, and we have another one here. I'm going to play.
2: <laughs> so I have here the palindrome clan. Yes, so in that recording, you not only have whales echolocating in the background, which is just kind of the popcorn underlying sounds but you also have boat noise which is that sort of whirring engine noise and then you have whales once again producing codas and the whales in this recording are from a different cultural group they're from what we call the palindrome clan and they're named because their codas the pattern of clicks is often like words that are palindromes So, for example, race car is a palindrome because it's spelled the same way forwards and backwards. So a lot of the codas in that recording followed a two plus two pattern. So it went click, click, pause, click, click. And if you reversed that, it would sound the same. It would sound click, click, pause, click, click.
1: Okay. And we have then... The Plus One Clan. Mm-hmm. It seems that there are quite a few sounds in this particular recording.
2: Yes. Again, it's a, it's another busy one. So, everything that sounds kind of like popcorn in the background is other whales echolocating. So those whales are foraging. But you also heard more codas. In this case, the Plus One Clan is named so because. They make codas very similar to the regular clan with equally spaced clicks, except they always leave an extended pause before the final click. But in that file, you can also hear a creak, which sounds pretty much like a creaky door opening. And that usually happens when a sperm whale, while they're foraging, they're actually honing in on their prey and they're about to try to catch it. So it sounds like And then usually there's a moment of silence after that happens when hopefully the whale has caught whatever it's trying to eat and is starting to swallow it.
1: And do we know anything else about the culture of these different whale clans, these sperm whale clans? So they make these different sounds. Do we know what they're saying to each other? Are they checking in? Are they getting excited about something? How far is the research along in that sense?
2: Well, one thing we know for sure is that codas are produced in social situations. So you'll never have just one whale off on its own make these sounds. So we can't say, and it likely isn't true that, you know, one coda corresponds to one word for sperm whales, but it really seems like a way of reaffirming the group you belong to. So, for example, sperm whales will go for long, deep dives where they're foraging alone. So, you know, 40, 45 minutes. But when they come back up to the surface and they're, you know, recovering and breathing at the surface with other members of their social unit, they will often make these codas. So it seems like it could be a way to sort of say okay, we were apart for 45 minutes, now we're going to be together for 10 or 15, and let's just reaffirm that this is our group, this is our identity, we belong to the same group, before we go off and do another dive.
1: If you've ever been snorkeling or diving in the ocean, you'll know that underwater is not a quiet place. It's full of clicks, crackles, buzzes, pops and creaks. That's the sound made by the life down there. But more and more, that sound is being drowned out by human activity and machinery. And Taylor says that's a huge threat for sperm whales.
2: This comes from a lot of things. It comes from navy sonar activities, seismic surveys, just vessel noise or echo sounders to look for fish from your boat. And one thing that I think is good about the sperm whales and the codas is that they usually make them when the whales are close together. So the nice thing is that as the oceans become noisier, this way of communicating isn't really meant to be used across long ranges. But that isn't to say that other forms of communication that the whales use aren't, like their echolocation. We know that really loud underwater noise like sonar or seismic drilling or seismic surveys can cause animals like the toothed whales to become really disoriented and to alter how they're diving.
1: I asked Taylor, if sperm whales were to disappear from our oceans, what would we lose? She said, firstly, as apex predators, they have a really important role in the food chain. And as giant divers, they're also important in moving matter around the ocean. But that's not all.
2: But I think, even beyond asking what ecosystem services they provide, it's worth thinking about what we lose if we lose a sperm whale culture, we're losing their unique way of foraging in a given environment or their unique way of being and existing in a certain part of the world and I think it definitely becomes it becomes a bit harder sometimes to wrap your head around and a bit more philosophical, but I think it's also worth asking. What do we owe these animals when it comes to making sure that their cultures persist? In the same way that I think most people would agree that cultural diversity for humans is worth fighting for and preserving.
1: So how can sperm whales, and all whales for that matter, be protected to ensure their cultures, their idiosyncrasies, and their roles in the ecosystem stay around?
2: I think we really need to work on concrete ways to incorporate sperm culture into how we manage them. But for just, you know, the average person who cares about these animals and wants to do anything they can to help them, a lot of the answers to that question just come back to doing things that are better for the environment in general. So trying to live more waste-free Trying to decrease the packaging in the things that you're buying, making sure that you're not throwing things onto the beach, which might get washed out to sea. And really, though, I think it, it'll come down to voting for politicians who who are focused on the environment and on climate and protecting the planet for future generations, you know, both human and animal. Taylor Hirsch, thank you so much for chatting to
1: us on Living Planet.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to chat today.
1: Animals may talk and sing and make myriad other sounds to find food and make sense of their surroundings. But can they make music using musical instruments? And if so, does it sound any good? If you've asked yourself these questions before, well, you've found yourself in the right place at the right time. Because Aussie musician and sound enthusiast Graham Leake, who now lives in Balfron in Scotland, set out to solve this very puzzle. And it turns out that others were interested too. Because with grants from public art bodies, Leek recorded the music made by wild birds and the environment on specially made instruments to create a new work for your ears. It's called eco-opera. Reporter Richard Baines had a chat to him and brings us this soothing soundscape
3: first instrument we've got here is what I call a sonic tube. It's a length of Perspex tubing, nearly three metres long with a microphone inside it. It's listening to the environment and mixing the sound of the tube with the sound of the environment to sort of create a drone. If I moved my voice down here close to the end of the tube, you'll hear what my voice sounds like when it's being recorded by the tube. Uh, Now we come over to the fence. A run of about 50 metres of fence wire uninterrupted with quite a lot of tension on it and on the end post there's a contact microphone rigged and here's the sound of the wire. This bird feeder is a tree stump and it's got some perches for the birds to land on but it's also got some wires stretched over those perches and there's a contact microphone in the base so anywhere that I tap on the feeder, it makes that sound. The stringed perches sound like this. And some little bamboo perches sort of have some nice notes as well, and dowel, And down on the ground is a zither. It's just a board, six strings stretched across it. And once again, a contact microphone. We spread seed over this and when the birds peck on it we get this kind of sound. Eco Opera came out of lockdown. It was when we were all planning to do other things and suddenly we had to stay home. We've had a bird feeder outside our window for many years and I've often watched it and thought there must be some very interesting music coming out of there and it began by miking up our existing table and then starting to make more specialised tables with more musical possibilities. It started out just with me doing this and then I played it to some colleagues in Australia and they said, why don't we do an international episode? We came up with the idea of recording simultaneously and so we've recreated the instruments of eco-opera and um, they are in Melbourne. We've now recorded two episodes. We applied for equal funding in Australia f- via the Australia Council for the Arts and f- with Creative Scotland and we were successful in both applications. We got about 14,000 from Creative Scotland and a similar amount in Australia. Eco-opera is not just sound, it's uh, beautifully filmed as well um, and this is to really give people a clear idea of exactly where these sounds are coming from. Episode 1, the rural location of Balfron which happens to be our front garden and the simultaneous recording was at the Royal Botanic Garden Cranbourne in Victoria. Episode two was very different to episode one because we recorded in a botanical gardens here at Benmore Gardens. Some friends of mine in Australia worked on recreating the instruments for me. This fellow Wallace Williams, he's an ex-dairy farmer Retired, and he recreated uh, the instruments that I'd made here. He took that table idea and he expanded on it and he put a whole bunch of uh, long metal tubes and put wooden discs on top and they each had a sort of a resonance. It was a beautiful instrument. One songbird that just sung its little heart out in Benmore. It was just the most amazing virtuosic performance from this one bird that sang continuously while we were recording and I was just amazed. I love sound and I love interesting and different types of sound. When I was a kid I used to go to my grandparents house and they had this fantastic metal bed frame that I slept on and I just remember positioning my ear on the metal bed end and drumming on on the bed end for hours and like it was incredible sounds in there I wanted to bring these worlds these inner worlds of sound to the listener in a way where we all hear it and uh, I think it's quite magical and quite beautiful we recorded for two hours straight and we don't edit the timeline at all we put those two hours together we obviously switch between shots and we mix the audio but there's no shift this is what happened in australia and at the same time as what happened in scotland the reaction to the piece has been really good i've had some wonderful feedback from people who are quite deeply moved by it uh, which has been lovely it's a global love song
1: With our minds fully at ease now, it's time to delve into some climate science. You might not have spent much time in or thinking about tidal salt marshes, but these unique coastal ecosystems are under great threat from the rapidly warming atmosphere and rising sea levels. These are salty wetlands. They're important not only because they store carbon at a rate 10 times higher than mature tropical rainforests, but also because they act as coastal guardians filtering runoff, protecting the shore against storm surges, and sheltering wildlife. Due to land development and agriculture, half of the world's salt marshes have already disappeared. And scientists are worried that the marshes that remain may unpredictably flip from absorbing carbon to actually emitting it. A team of Smithsonian Institution scientists has been studying one salt marsh for 35 years. New experiments there are shedding light on the uncertain future of these critical ecosystems. Christian Elliott brings us that story.
0: Seeing the global change research wetland for the first time is like stepping into another world. Boardwalks crisscross the vast expanse of waving sedges – Winding through decades of science history, past a dozen experiments. Plastic octagonal chambers cover sections of the marsh like igloos, pumped full of carbon dioxide. Motors hum, chambers open and shot on their own, measuring methane emissions. All this infrastructure is constantly simulating possible climate conditions decades into the future to learn how marshes will respond to climate change.
1: We turned on all the experiments, and now all the uh, pumps are running.
0: It's the first day of May, and the marsh is coming to life. Bits of green push up through last fall's detritus. Field scientists and technicians from the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center are all around, hauling plastic panels for grass chambers and tuning up CO2 pumps.
1: This is a very well-studied marsh. So, like, really aren't any other marshes in the world that have nearly this much infrastructure. We, the goal was to be able to extrapolate from this to other ecosystems.
0: That's Genevieve Noyce, a primary investigator at the Global Change Research Wetland, or G.Crew. Today, she's here to do a routine methane measurement on one experiment. All the experiments being conducted here are to answer one big question. How are salt marshes affecting our atmosphere as the climate changes? Here in Maryland, along the Chesapeake Bay, salt marshes are rare. In the early 1900s, farmers started filling tons of them in for agriculture. Now, environmentalists are pushing to convert those fields back to tidal marshes as a climate change solution. The National Park Service is already restoring farmland to salt marsh in Cape Cod, and scientists want to know if that's a good idea. So
4: by doing that, we can really reduce the carbon footprint of, of these post-agricultural systems. But to do that, we need to know how much methane is being emitted, and we need to be able to predict the amount of methane that's coming out of it now and in the future.
0: That's Alia Al-Haj, a postdoc working for Genevieve. She's setting up a new experiment. Looking at what happens when marshes are not only heated, but also flooded by rising sea levels. Her findings will help legislators calculate the monetary value of marshes to establish carbon credits for restorations. But those grand ambitions start modestly, in a small white room at the research center. Alia heaves this giant ball of muddy roots from a cart into an industrial sink. It looks like a big slice of marsh plopped into a pristine, for the moment, white sink. She rolls up her sleeves. To understand a marsh, you have to understand its plants.
4: This part is not very glamorous. It involves lugging a lot of dirty water around. It's like brute, brute lady strength. You know, (laughs) just ripping these out of the marsh. So you can see, like, how many roots there really are. Like, this mass is all roots. So that's what's building up these marshes every year. They're putting out new roots. Those roots Those roots and rhizomes die eventually. They're forming this peat mass underneath. And then new plants are growing on top of that peat mass and the marsh gains elevation because of that.
0: Marsh plants spend some time out of the water as the tide ebbs and flows. But with rising sea levels, about a centimeter a year here in coastal Maryland, the marsh just isn't building itself up fast enough to keep up. Inundate a marsh too much and the plants die. So how will flooding from sea level rise affect marsh greenhouse gas emissions? That's Alia's big question. As Alia yanks at the roots, a sulfury smell starts to fill the sediment I'm rinsing drinking.
4: room. These systems often smell funky because they have a lot of hydrogen sulfide, and so hydrogen sulfide smells like rotten eggs.
0: Certain microbes in salt marsh soil can eat up the sulfates that occur naturally in seawater and emit hydrogen sulfide gas. That funky smell actually means less methane is being produced underground, sulfate-consuming microbes are out-competing other microbes that produce the greenhouse gas methane. Freshwater marshes, in contrast, don't have sulfate, so methane-producing microbes have free rain to emit. This microscopic battle raging underground has ecosystem and even global effects. Depending on who wins, who gets to decompose the roots and rhizomes? These Tiny micro battles can change the makeup of our atmosphere. It's a micro war with very macro effects. Once her sedges are separated and cleaned, Alia's experiment actually gets underway. She's building what's called a marsh organ. It consists of a series of plants in pipes at different levels placed in the marsh to simulate different degrees of sea level rise. To simulate warming, the pots have heating elements with a thermistor that maintains a constant temperature of 6 degrees Celsius above the ambient air. A few organs will be at a freshwater marsh site, and a few will reside here. Science becomes carpentry.
4: Yeah. Well, something good about science that you can touch. And, and, and.
0: A few months of waiting and measuring later, and the results are in. Plants at lower elevations in Alia's marsh organs—once flooded by seawater—definitely produce more methane. That's because when marsh soil is exposed to air during low tides, methane-producing microbes don't emit as much of the greenhouse gas because they don't tolerate oxygen well. The more time a marsh spends underwater the more time methane-producing microbes have to consume soil carbon and emit methane. So what's the takeaway? A warmer, wetter salt marsh is still a carbon sink, just not as good of one. As climate change progresses, salt marshes won't be able to offset as much carbon as they do now. Still, Alia have found warmer, Flooded salt marshes produce 50 times less methane than comparable freshwater marshes, which are themselves still carbon sinks. And there's some evidence that salt marshes could migrate with changing coastlines into forests as sea levels rise. Where the marshes are could shift instead of them just going away. That all means that letting the tide back into farm fields, restoring salt marshes, is still a very good idea.
4: Yeah, we're still learning a lot, a lot about, a lot about like what microbes are capable of because we often underestimate them.
0: It goes to show, even when you look at our changing planet at the grandest scale, you can't overlook the tiniest players. For DW, I'm Christian Elliott in Edgewater, Maryland.
1: And that brings us to an end of this week's Living Planet. If you're listening to this on the radio and you'd like to listen to more Living Planet, check out our podcast feed available on all podcast platforms. Thanks to our studio team for this episode, Michelle Springer and Vivke Teigtmeier, and to Elliot Douglas for help with production. And thank you for listening. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe.